Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. Let's listen carefully now to God's holy word. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, let's, with God's help and relying upon Him, turn back to Romans chapter 3, focusing our attention upon verse 9. Verse 9 and verse 10. Paul says, What then? What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Paul's extremely emphatic here in this text. You can see that. Are we better than they? Not at all. Doesn't even leave a hair's breadth of an alternative. Not at all. Is there anyone righteous? No. Not one. Paul is emphatic here because what he's dealing with is of the utmost importance for us to understand. If we fail to understand what this text is saying to us here this morning, then we might as well crumble up the book of Romans and toss it in the circular file because it becomes utterly meaningless. This doctrine of sin that Paul is expounding is the heart and soul of the gospel from which there is no good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, What then, Paul says, are we better than they? He's addressing this phenomenon that if you look at the whole scope of human history, this phenomenon has proved more toxic than anything else. 
What is this phenomenon that Paul is bringing front and center for our consideration here this morning? This toxic phenomenon in human history. It is man's natural tendency to exalt himself. Man's inherent tendency to exalt himself against God, to exalt himself against others. We might call it man's superiority complex. That's what Paul is dealing with. Are we better than they? Are we better? Are we better? That's a a fundamental question that Paul is addressing because as sinful human beings, it is our tendency to say we are better. And we do that in a number of ways. But throughout world history, you see it with Satan himself. Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High. Satan exalts himself over against God to be like God. Really, to challenge God's exclusive claim to be God. Which is to essentially thrust God off the throne and put himself there. And exalt himself against all the other angels. And against all the other creatures. Satan's booted out of heaven. What does he immediately do? He tries to sell mankind the same clunker that he bought at the used car lot. It didn't work for him, but he's selling it to mankind. This natural tendency, or at this point it's a temptation, to a superiority complex. He tempts Adam and Eve to exalt themselves against God. You can become gods, and you can become wise, and you can exalt yourself against God and against one another. And of course, coming out of the fall of man into sin, you see that original sin, or the sin that became inherent in the nature of man upon that fall into sin, which spreads humanism throughout every single heart of every single person conceived and born in sin. Other than the Lord Jesus Christ, all of Adam and Eve's offspring, all of humanity throughout history came into this world conceived and born in sin and had a fundamental bent or proclivity or tendency toward this self-exaltation, this humanistic philosophy, this humanistic mindset. Even when the Gentiles worshipped false gods, who chiseled out those gods? Who carved them? Who decided what they looked like? Who named them? Who came up with the backstory and the narrative behind them? Man. Man exalted, even even when when it was a sort of indirect humanism by way of idolatry, man decided that he would replace God with a creature, a created God of his own devising. Humanism. Man is the measure of all things. Man decides who God is, what He's like. Man decides who and how He worships. Man decides what is right and wrong. Man decides everything. Man does what is right in his own eyes. And man presents that self-exaltation as Satan presented it to Adam and Eve. He presents it as liberation. You're going to be free. You're going to be liberated from the tyranny of this God. And you will be gods yourselves. That is, for a few seconds. Because once God is off the throne, then humanity is, is fighting and quarreling and clamoring to get themselves on the throne. And you see this throughout history. That once you exalt yourself against God, and once the fool says in his heart, there is no God, pretty soon that fool wants to be on that throne. And it's just like in um, George Orwell's Animal Farm. 
initially, it's four legs good, two legs bad. The farm animals are rebelling against the tyranny of the farmers, the farmer and his family. Four legs good, two legs bad, for a while, until the two-leggers are out of the picture, and now the animals move into the house. The leaders of this liberation movement move into the house. They begin dressing up like the farmer and his family, and they're walking on two legs, and now it's four legs good, two legs better. You see, very quickly, once you get God off the throne, as William Penn famously said, uh, that uh, he who would not be governed by God will be governed by tyrants. So humanism ultimately leads to tyranny of one man, one human over another, or one group of humans over others. It ultimately leads us to this mentality that we are better than they are. You can see it throughout our world. We've pushed God out, and what comes in to fill the void? Racial superiority complex. We are better than they are. We're better. We're better than they are. And then then the people on the other side say, yeah, well, you think you're better, which makes you bad, which means we're better than you. I mean, it goes back and forth. Racism and and reverse racism, back and forth, back and forth in self-destruction mode. And destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. Why? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. If you take out God, we all become competing gods in the pantheon of humanism trying to get uh, uh, a leg up in the battle. Or it leads to government tyranny. Again, just read Animal Farm by George Orwell. If God is out of the, the picture... Maybe the people in the government, they begin to think we're better. You know, let them eat cake. We're better than they are. Or maybe it's global elite uh, families and individuals and they've got all the money in the world, literally speaking, and we are better than they are. One man over against another. You see it in false religion where you have a hierarchy of infallible religious leaders that lord it over the people. And Paul is dealing with this as he's confronting his own Jewish brethren. Because he's saying, look, if you go back to chapter 2, you've adopted a superiority complex over all the Gentiles throughout the world. Chapter 1, he points out the many reasons it would have tempted the Jews to think that they're better than the Gentiles by nature. Because the Gentiles had fallen into darkness and idolatry and perversion and sins of all kinds. But he says in chapter 2 that essentially the Jews are no better. He says we've previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So chapter 2 verse 17, indeed you are called a Jew and you rest on the law and you make your boast in God. And you, you hear this superiority complex just dripping from the tongue of this Jew that Paul's putting these things in his mouth because Paul was this this, uh, self-superior Jewish rabbi before his conversion. So he knows the mentality. He says, you know his will. You approve things that are excellent. You're instructed out of the law. You're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. Here's you, Mr. Maturity, and you're helping out those Gentiles helping them to understand the first things of the Word of God. Superiority complex, pride, self-righteousness. He says you're no better. Verse 21, chapter 2. 
You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man shouldn't steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Are you sexually pure? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Are you reverencing the Lord's name? Or are you committing sacrilege, which is what that phrase means? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? So you're, you're taking the superiority of God's word and you're imputing that to yourself. But is it the case you're actually disobeying that word? I mean, Paul is, is willing to acknowledge God's word is superior. God's, God is superior. His truth is superior. The work of His Holy Spirit in the life of an individual is superior. He's not denying that. But what he's saying is, if we think that just by hearing the law and understanding the Word of God intellectually and embracing some type of Christian worldview, that we get to partake of that superiority, he says, nonsense. We're all by nature under sin. Are we better? Not at all. We're not better, Paul says. The Gentiles aren't better. And of course, it's a tendency. We all think we're better. The Gentiles, in chapter 1, were approving of their sinful lifestyle. They were approving of those who practice perversion, those who live according to unrighteousness. They were exchanging the glory of God for that of idolatry, and no doubt they thought they were doing the right thing. Look at the Greek philosophers. This is what they would say consistently. This is the way to live. We've figured it out. Here are the principles of wisdom and ethics and righteousness. Meanwhile, half of them are pedophiles, wicked, perverse individuals, but they're approving it. They think they're better. The Jews were no different. They think they're better. Paul says, are we really? No, we're not. Not at all. Not at all. According to Paul, the only solution, or we could say the chief fundamental solution to this toxic superiority complex is very simple, the biblical doctrine of sin. That is the solution to man's superiority complex. The biblical doctrine of sin, or we might say the biblical doctrine of human sin. The biblical doctrine of human nature. However you want to say that, that's what he's saying in verse 10 when he says, as it is written. He's saying, when, if you want to understand right and wrong, if you want to understand human nature, human character, if you want to understand man and morality and all of these things, you need to go to the Bible. Not to the pop psychologists, not to the blogosphere. You need to go to the Bible. The biblical doctrine of human sin. And when it comes to the doctrine of humanity and of sinfulness, really, in a, in a sense, there are three options. There are three options that help us to put in perspective the biblical doctrine of human sin. Is mankind, A, moral? Or we could say morally good. That's option A. Mankind is inherently moral, inherently good from a moral perspective. Now, Look at the world. I'm, we're not going to spend much time on this, on this, on option A, okay? I'm trying to get you ready for Tuesday because we're going to have some multiple choice to fill out. But option A, all right, 
man is inherently and morally good. That's ridiculous. If you look at the world today, let's just take human trafficking. Is there going to be human trafficking if man is inherently good? Look at the wars. Look at the 50, 60, 70 wars that are taking place right now. The fact that you don't know about them adds even more evil to the equation. But man is not inherently good. I remember I was uh, street preaching at an abortion clinic a year or two ago uh, in, um, I can't remember where it was, in Westland. And uh, they had all of these pink-vested death scorts there, these uh, feminists who were trying to encourage women to kill their baby and so on and so forth. And, uh, but it's a, nice, it's a nice audience for evangelism. You know, you've got the microphone preaching the gospel to these people and honestly trying to connect with them, not trying to rip them apart or, or be nasty or anything like that, um, but to preach the gospel to them. And I remember thinking to myself, is there a verse in the Bible that would be a good starting point for a pro-abortion feminist wearing the pink vest? Uh, you know, because they're mocking us and they're saying all kinds of nasty things at us. What, what, what would be a good verse? And I thought, well... It came to me, Proverbs 20, verse 6. Every man proclaims his own goodness, but a faithful man, who can find? And so I recited that and expounded it. And actually, I got some heads nodding. I had one sister, no, not sister, but you know what I'm saying, in a way. She would, amen, I hope she's a sister by now. But the point is, every man, see that really, that word man, I think helped my cause there. Every man proclaims his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. Of course, it applies to women as well. But you know what I'm saying. People are unfaithful. People are not inherently good. They're not inherently self-sacrificial and selfless. And if your experience doesn't, doesn't dictate that in your mind, um, I've got some serious questions. But honestly, just, just stick with the Bible. There's no one righteous, not one. So that's option A. It's a serious problem if we're holding to that. The second option is that man is inherently amoral or a non-moral being or we could say morally neutral. So option A, man is morally good inherently and from the womb. Right? Because you had to teach little Johnny to grab the pencil and sock little Billy and say mine, right? We had to teach them that. Man's inherently good, but that's option A. Option B, man is morally neutral. In fact, there is no morality. Man is just a slightly more sophisticated chimpanzee whose smile just isn't as wide and, uh, and constant. So, so man is just an animal. And there is no absolute morality. There are just brain chemicals and synapses firing and bouncing around. Man is subject to his environment. And morality is simply an exercise in evolutionary survival, utilitarianism, pragmatism. Man is amoral. And that's the kind of philosophy that you get from someone like Friedrich Nietzsche. Listen to what he said. The concept of guilt and punishment, including the doctrine of grace of redemption, of forgiveness, lies through and through and without any psychological reality. So he's saying there's no such thing as guilt and therefore there's no such thing as having your guilt removed or being redeemed. There's no such thing as forgiveness. 
there's no psychological reality, whatever that means to Frederick Nietzsche or whatever it meant at the time. But he's saying there's, there's no guilt, there's no punishment, there's no grace, redemption, forgiveness. All of these things are non-existent. He goes on to say this, Sin, to say it again, was invented to make science, culture, every kind of elevation and nobility of man impossible. The priest rules through the invention of sin. So the whole idea of sin and morality and punishment and forgiveness, that whole idea, that's just a conspiracy theory that priests and religious leaders are trying to propagate for their own self-interest. Nietzsche. Wait a second, isn't that the guy that historians refer to as the honorable philosopher of the Third Reich? This is the most influential thinker when it came to the Holocaust, the Nazi party, and their slaughter of of as many as six million Jews. This is the guy, right? And this is the philosophy that man is morally neutral, he's an animal, he's evolved, and morality is simply about surviving and thriving in an evolutionary world, and the idea of sin and punishment and God's authority and eternal punishment, these kinds of things were just invented. It's a conspiracy theory. It's invented to make science, culture, every kind of elevation and nobility of mankind. Is that what Nietzsche's looking for? Elevation and nobility of mankind? By gassing the Jews. Think about that. Think about where this mindset leads because you're going to find this same mentality that is throughout academia in our country today, throughout the political spectrum, the very same idea. Don't tell me that it's wrong to be anti-Semitic and then espouse the philosophy that killed millions of Jews. That is the most hypocritical nonsense you could possibly fathom. But that is the second option. uh, That man is amoral. Man is morally neutral. There's no right and wrong. There's no God. And when there's no God, what do we find? Hell on earth. Buckle your safety belts. If this is what takes over, this is what you're going to see. And the fact is, people just don't understand it. Not just because they don't understand the Bible. They don't know history. They don't understand how ideas function over the course of human events. But that's the case. Uh, Option B. Hopefully we're not persuaded by that. Option C. Option C is that man man is immoral. Man is inherently immoral. He's not moral. He's not amoral. He is utterly immoral. Conceived and born in sin. That, my friends, is the biblical view. That is what you find here from the Apostle Paul. There is no one righteous, no, not one. He says it this way, all are under sin. That means they're under the dominion and power of sin. They have a desire to exalt themselves at God's expense, at everyone else's expense. They're selfish sinners from the womb, by nature. Little Billy socks little Jimmy because that's who he is by nature. He wants the pencil. You'd think evolutionists could understand that, I suppose, you know. But we're all selfish. We're all under sin. We're all under its guilt and its power and its dominion. Now let me just stop there for a moment and say that if you're not a Christian, 
that you should take this very seriously because what we're dealing with here is, as I said, a fundamental teaching of the Bible. And it's something you can verify, right? I mean, the Bible's going to tell you that Jesus rose again from the dead. And of course, the Bible verifies that. I'm not denying that. But in your experience as an unbeliever who doesn't pay much attention to the Bible or give it much credence on these types of questions, you, you can't actually see it for yourself. Right? You can't go back and see Jesus rise from the dead. You can't go up into heaven to see if He's reigning at God's right hand right now. You can't get in your DeLorean and go ahead to the future of the final judgment. You can't do those things. Now, obviously, the Bible calls you to believe. But here's the point. This is a teaching of the Bible that you can verify. Right? So there's no excuse here. There's no excuse for you to say man is inherently good or man is morally neutral. There's no excuse because this is something that you can check. You ever thought about that? Jesus, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, telling him that he must be born again, essentially saying, you're not inherently good, Nicodemus. You're you're not righteous. You're a sinner. You're a very religious sinner, but you need to be born again. You need the old heart of sin taken out. You need a new heart. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't even know these things. It's amazing, Jesus says. But listen to what he says in verses 11 and 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. So when the Word of God speaks, breathed out by God the Holy Spirit, speaking to us the words of God, the words of Christ... We ought to believe it on God's testimony. No doubt about it. We, we, we ought to believe that if it were not so, He would have told us. We believe the testimony. But listen, he goes on verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's saying, Nicodemus, I'm telling you that man is inherently sinful and needs a rebirth in order to be saved. And if you can't look at your experience and look at human society and look at the hypocrisy and perversion all around you and examine your own heart, if you can't look at these things, Nicodemus, then there's a problem. How are you ever going to believe that Jesus rose again? How are you ever going to believe that He's seated at God's right hand? How are you ever going to make sense of the final judgment? if you can't even receive the things Jesus says that actually resonate in your own experience and are so obvious that you can't in good conscience really deny them without pulling the wool over your own eyes. So option C, man is immoral. All are under sin. And... When, when Paul says this, he's speaking of man by nature. That's very important to understand. He's speaking of us by nature. He's not speaking of believers here. And, and I'll say something about this. But in principle, he's talking about people apart from saving grace. He's not saying that once somebody's born again, and once somebody has the Holy Spirit writing God's law upon their hearts, that they can never be called righteous in any sense. That doesn't make any sense at all because you go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and God's people are referred to as righteous in their conduct again and again and again. Look at the early chapters of Luke uh, with John the Baptist's parents 
that would be an example. But God's people are spoken of as righteous in their conduct uh, throughout the Scriptures. So when He gives this description, no one righteous, no not one, their throat is an open tomb, their tongues practice deceit, okay, that is not true. For instance, if you had an elder election and you're supposed to elect somebody who is above reproach, right? If this is describing everybody, we wouldn't have elders in the church, okay? This passage is describing human depravity, original sin. This is describing what man is that makes him to be in need of salvation. This is what man is as he's conceived and born, apart from God's saving grace. Uh, if you look, for instance, at Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Back to verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The point is, all of us by nature are under sin's dominion. Salvation liberates mankind from that depravity. Liberates mankind. So don't think, and I've seen churches, I remember looking at a church website that claimed to be reformed. And right there on their statement of faith, they listed Romans chapter 3, 9-20, through 20, and they were quoting this saying, this is what we all are. As Christians today, this is who we are. And, and really what you're doing there when you say that is denying the work of regeneration and sanctification. Because the believer is not under sin. This is all mankind by nature. Now with that said, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what makes you to differ one from another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you were by nature a child of wrath, a bond slave to the devil, Ephesians 2, 1 and following, if that's who you were by nature, and now you're different, and now you're not under the dominion of sin, if that's the case, and you've been liberated so that you're not presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness, Romans 6, but now you're presenting them as, mem- as uh, members, as instruments of righteousness, if that's you... Why is it that you're different? Is it anything in you? Is, that, is it because you done got saved and made the decision for Christ? No, it's because God looked upon you in pity and in unmerited love and favor and saved you from your sins. You were born again and you opened your eyes as a born again believer and a repentant sinner. That is how you got to where you got. That's why you differ from the unbeliever that's described here by nature. It's because of a work of God's grace. Glory be to Him. But this is referring to sinners by nature. And yet, what is described in these verses in principle is present in every single person in this world. In every single believer in this world, there is sin that remains. Even a person who is born again, who might be the godliest person on the face of the earth, though sin is not reigning in the believer, sin is remaining. Sin is reigning over the unconverted, but sin is remaining in believers. And you can read Romans chapter 7 to see Paul 
battling back and forth with sin. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I want to do this, but I end up falling into sin. Paul had remaining sin. It wasn't raining. Thanks be to God. He delivered Paul. And in Romans 8, he laid the smack down on sin. But the fact is that that was something that was a progressive process in his life. And we never get to the point where there's no remaining sin until heaven. So it ought to humble all of us. In principle, what we read here about a mouthful of cursing and bitterness, about a throat being an open tomb, about not fearing God, we fall into these sins as believers every day of the week in one way or another. This sinful flesh that rises up and wages war against our new man, our spiritual regenerate nature. My friends, take stock of this. Be humbled by this. Because it's present in all of us. And because it's present in all of us, even as believers, it's a dead fly in the ointment when it comes to any hope of righteousness in the sight of God by our good works. Do believers perform good works? Absolutely, by the grace of God they do. And in and through Christ saving a sinner and clothing and perfuming that sinner with His perfect righteousness, God looks at His own handiwork in our good works and He's pleased by it. But you take Christ out of the equation and our sinfulness as believers is like a dead fly in the ointment. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 1. You've got this fragrant perfume, this ointment, but you've got dead flies in the ointment and it stinks. Literally to high heaven. And if you think that you're going to be righteous in the sight of God because you've done some of these good works, understand Titus says, not by works of righteousness that we have done. And and if you think about it, only the believer can really do a work of righteousness. The dead works of the unbeliever. Okay? Those aren't going to justify anybody. But Titus says, as believers, we shouldn't even look at the genuine works of righteousness that God produces through our sanctification as having any contribution to our right standing with God. They are the fruit of the righteousness of Christ. They are not the root. They are not the cause. They are not the basis, not even one-tenth of one percent of our legal righteousness in the sight of God. Because if God took into account even your best work of righteousness, it would pollute the whole thing. It would pollute the whole thing. Uh, you know, if, if, if I gave you a milkshake and I said, I only put one teaspoon of, uh, you know, Paul in Greek says skubala, we'll say dung. But I just put one spoonful of pig dung into the milkshake, just one, don't worry. It's mostly good. You're not going to want to drink that. And God's not interested in whatever good works we have if there's just a spoonful of sin, just a little ounce of pride, just a little pinch of self-righteousness or of anger or of bitterness or of hypocrisy or whatever it may be, vanity. It's a fly in the ointment. It disqualifies. It pollutes. Our best works of righteousness are as filthy rags. If you think your um, speech... Your words, the way you communicate, is more godly than Isaiah. Um, that would be quite an accomplishment because he, he's one of the most godly prophets in all the Bible and he says some of the most beautiful things about the Lord Jesus Christ throughout that prophecy of Isaiah. 
wonderful counselor, mighty God. And yet Isaiah himself says, I'm a man of unclean lips. What hope do you have? What hope do I have? Uh, So our sanctification is insufficient for our right standing before God. So in that sense, we can say, no one righteous, not one. And we can apply it to ourselves in that sense. That in the sight of a holy God, when it comes to our legal standing before Him, none of us is righteous. No, not one. And according to Paul, man's enslavement to sin is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It's what we call in in terms of Reformed theology, total. Perhaps you've heard of total depravity. Total depravity. Depravity. Sin is comprehensive. It's total. Every part of humanity is corrupted. Not to the maximum degree, but every part is corrupted. And so you look through verse 10 and following the biblical doctrine of human sin, and no one is righteous. So our conduct is polluted. None who understands Our intellectual faculties, our mind, our understanding has been darkened and polluted by sin. None who seeks after God, but instead we turn aside. Our will, our choices, our decisions have been corrupted and polluted. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. So everything we do, it's all for naught. Every aspect, mind, will, emotions... Our words, our throat is an empty tomb. Uh, Verse 15, our feet are swift to shed blood. How do we shed blood? With our hands. Our feet run there, our hands engage in the murder. um, Or our hands vote for the people who engage in the murder. But our, our feet are swift to shed blood. And the way of peace we haven't known. I mean, our every aspect of humanity is summarized here. It's like an ice cube tray. Have you ever tried to fill up an ice cube tray? Maybe you have a refrigerator that does that for you. I don't know. But if you try to fill up an ice cube tray, um, you know, the goal is obviously to get each compartment filled with water and then put it in the freezer so that you have ice cubes. But just imagine in terms of total depravity that, um, that you just kind of do it in a haphazard way and every compartment in the ice cube tray has some water in it but they're not all filled to the same extent and they're not all filled to the brim. That's total depravity. So there's a sinful corruption in mind, will, emotions, word, deed, every aspect, but it's not as bad as it could be, but it's bad in every area. There's some water in every compartment in the ice cube tray. That's the idea here. And we have to be careful of either on the one hand, acting as if total depravity means people are as bad as they could possibly be. Thankfully, that's not the case. Uh, On the other hand, we could say, well, uh, we could exaggerate uh, the extent to which man is not as bad as he could be, and we we could pretend that maybe some of those compartments are bone dry, but they're not. There's sin in every aspect. And Paul begins by asserting this main thesis that he has about human sin. He says, there is none righteous, no not one. Now remember what Paul is doing here is he's refuting the idea that we are better. Are we better? 
Are we better than they? See, the question and the whole premise of this superiority complex is a comparative excellence, a comparative righteousness, a comparative superiority. But Paul says, no, you need to think in absolute terms. And so he combats this idea of better than with the word righteous. He doesn't say more righteous, less righteous. He says there is none righteous. He says it doesn't matter if you're more righteous or less righteous. You know, if we're all serial killers and I've killed two people and you've killed 15, oh, you know, more righteous, less righteous. These categories are irrelevant. Are you innocent or guilty? Are you righteous or unrighteous? There's only two categories here. And Paul says, in absolute fundamental terms, there are none who are actually righteous. He says it's not the Gentiles. You can read in chapter 1, verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. Listen to this list. If you're guilty of anything in here, you're disqualified. Sexual immorality. Wickedness, covetousness, you're discontented, you're complaining, you're unhappy, you you envy people, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, whispering behind people's backs, gossiping, backbiters, haters of God. In other words, the word here is the idea of reproaching God, taking His name in vain, violent, proud, right there. Right? I mean, if anybody says, I haven't committed any of these sins, okay, well, we just got you with proud, right? That's proud. Uh, there's none righteous. If anyone says he's without sin, you're calling God a liar. So you're a hater of God. I mean, th- there's really no way out of this predicament. We could go on and read chapter 1, chapter 2, Jews, Gentiles, barbarians, Scythians, slave and free, male and female. There is none righteous. Absolutely so. Uh, salvation or eternal life has a price tag. It's not an auction. It's not like whoever shows up like on eBay. Well, you know, it's worth this, but if I bid on it, nobody else does, I'll get it at a cheaper price. Sorry. It's not judged on the curve. It's not an auction. There's a no-haggle price tag on it. And Jesus said to the rich young ruler, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. Galatians 3 tells us that if we break even one of the commandments, we're disqualified. James tells us if we break one, we broke them all. And you say, well, I still, you know, there's some kind of comparison. I just feel like I want I want a reference point here to compare. I want to see where I stand. Okay, here's a comparison. Jesus at his baptism, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You want to be acceptable to God, You want God to be well pleased with you and say, well done, good and faithful servant, and bring you into heaven, and you want to do it based on your own performance and your own moral character. Well, there you go. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says Jesus Christ is the one who knew no sin. He knew no sin. What does that mean? Adam knew his wife Eve. They came together. They had an intimacy, a relationship. Jesus had no relationship with sin. He did not participate in sin. 
Sin was foreign to his very being. He didn't have sin on the inside or the outside. No deceit was found upon his lips, upon his mouth. He never sinned. He, he, he would have no experience, no sense. I mean, of course, as God, he's omniscient. But he, he never committed sin. He doesn't even know what it's like to commit sin from an experiential standpoint. He knew no sin. And, and, and when Paul brings that up, he's pleading with us that we would look to Jesus for our righteousness. He says, we're ambassadors of Christ. We're imploring you. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There's your reference point, if you will. Hebrews 4.15 He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Think of Every time you've fallen into sin and you've blamed somebody else for tempting you, or you've blamed the devil, or you've blamed the billboard, or you've blamed somebody for getting on your nerves, it's the last straw, you lost your temper, you blamed it because you're saying, well, I've been tempted. And, and there was this burden placed upon me and, and I couldn't do anything but sin. We all know. We've, we, we all have these excuses. Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. You think people didn't get on Jesus' nerves? You don't think people around Him were provoking Him, seeking to provoke Him to wrath? You don't think the devil was enticing Him 40 days in the desert without food? Turn those stones into bread, tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And He could say to His enemies, which one of you convicts me of sin? Step right up, which one of you? Could you say that? Could you say that in family worship with your wife and your children there? Could you say that and nobody, you know, nobody would have anything to say? I couldn't. Could you? Well, then you're guilty. You're not righteous. You're guilty in the sight of God by comparison. Are you better than Christ? Then what sense does it make with any of these other comparisons? And there are no exceptions. Paul makes it a point. He's saying no exceptions. This is true of every one of us by nature. Every one of us insofar as we are human beings that have come into this world. Every one of us is a sinner. How many righteous? None. Not even one. As Jonathan Edwards says, if you can't take this in a universal, comprehensive sense, then the Bible is essentially meaningless. Because how else could Paul say it? There's none righteous, no, not one. And this has implications, friends, because there is no trap door of salvation. People like to say, well, you know, there are these people in other countries and other religions and, and they've never heard the gospel and they're really nice people. You know, Joel Osteen, my dad went to India, and, and, and I don't really know, Larry King, whether the... Listen, there's no trap door of salvation. There is one name under heaven by which we must be saved. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. How will they hear without a preacher? These people that have not heard the gospel, and have therefore not believed the gospel... There is no hope of salvation apart from them hearing and believing. That's why we evangelize. That's why we fund and send missionaries to the four corners of the globe. Because there's no trap door where people are saved just because they're really nice people who never heard the gospel. 
Jesus Christ is the door. And if you don't enter in through Him, then there's no hope. That's not something I came up with. Sorry, Nietzsche. That's not something religious leaders... That's what the Bible teaches. That there is no one righteous. The Roman Catholic Church says otherwise. Billy Graham said otherwise. But, but the fact is, there's no other way of salvation. The Gentiles are without excuse, even without the Scriptures, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 20. And the Jews heard the gospel of righteousness through Christ, and they would not submit to the righteousness of God, Romans 10, 1 through 4. You say, but what about all those nice people? They're so nice to me. My friends, the fact that we even struggle with that question reveals our utter godlessness in our flesh or as the guiding principle in our lives if we're unbelievers. Uh, Think about this. Let's say you were a German during World War II, during the Holocaust, and uh, they were putting the, the Nazi prison guards on trial. The people that raped and murdered countless Jewish people. And you said... Well, I knew that guard. In fact, I knew a whole slew of them. I knew those guys. They were really nice to me. And so, you know, I don't think, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Oh, they participated in the Holocaust, but they were so nice to me. You see how selfish that is. You see how utterly ridiculous that is. But that's what you're saying. These people who hate God, who reject His Word, who reject the light of nature, who exchange Him, for a cheap substitute through idolatry, who reject Christ for their own self-righteousness. These people who do not fear God, who rebel against Him every day, and who are God's enemies. And you're sitting here saying, well, on Judgment Day, maybe they should go to heaven. Because they were real nice to me. That's not just wrong, that's obnoxious, friends. I'm not saying if if you're struggling with that issue that you're obnoxious. I'm saying we by nature as fleshly sinners are obnoxious. We we tend to put ourselves out there as if we ourselves are God. In fact, I'm I'm concerned not not as much in a sense for the person way out there that we're talking about hypothetically who's never heard the gospel. I'm concerned for you. If you think that on judgment day, God's primary criteria should be whether somebody was nice to you. God's criteria is whether they loved and served and obeyed the God who made them. And if that's not a sufficient criteria, then my friends, not only is our theology wrong, but we're well nigh unto being part of that group that is under the wrath of God. There is no one righteous, not one. And uh, my time is gone. Next time, uh, we're going to focus our attention upon... um, There is none who understands. My friends, there's so much here. There's so much here. Let's take it in by faith. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Your Word in that it confronts the very fiber of our natural constitution as fallen sinners. We pray that You, O Lord, would remove hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh, that you would enable us as believers to triumph over our remaining sin, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Enable us to avoid being deceptively lured 
into a humanistic self-exaltation and superiority complex. Humble us by way of this gospel. Humble us by way of this biblical doctrine of sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.